Hey there, welcome to Board Game Hot Takes, the podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. My name's Tim. This is Chris. This is Adam. And today, instead of giving our hot take review on a game we just finished playing, we're going to start counting down our top 30 games of all time. The definitive best 30 games of all time that we all have different lists on, but at least for us, the top 30 games of all time. So today's episode is going to cover numbers 30, counting down to 21. And then next week, we'll do 20 down to 11. And then the week after that, we'll do our top 10. So next three weeks, we're just going to be covering all the great games that we love. But as we always do, before we jump into that list, I have some poll results to discuss. Uh, Every week, I ask a poll on Twitter, something board game related, and get a chance to listen to the rabble and hear what they have to say about these questions. Uh, But also, we have a lot of great comments on these polls. So if you don't follow us on Twitter, come find us at BG underscore hot takes. Follow us there and uh, give your feedback on these polls. And oftentimes, we're going to read some comments back on them. So the poll that I asked this week, I mentioned that games like Catan, Castles of Burgundy, and Suro have recently had some very pricey premium versions made. And I asked what you think of expensive luxury versions of popular board games. Before I get into the poll results here, or even asking your guys' feedback, did you guys see this Suro Luxury Limited Edition that's up on Kickstarter right now? Have you looked at it? I have not. What, say the name again, Tim. Sorry. Suro. It's T-S-U-R-O. Luxury Limited Edition. It's a game that's probably been out for 10 or 15 years. I don't remember exactly when it was printed. But it's a, it's a fairly light little game. It's a tile-laying game where you place a tile, and then all of the tokens your token moves around the board the direction that the tile focuses and eventually you're going to put these little mazes of tiles together and your tile you're going to lose if you fall off the board or if you run into another token and so it's a pretty simple kind of luck driven fun little game takes about 15 20 minutes to play a game and it's probably i don't know a 20 30 dollar game on kickstarter right now there's a luxury limited edition and this game is the starting pledge is $350. What? Yeah. So, but, but Chris, go take a look on Kickstarter right now and take a look at this game. And that's what this poll is all about. So just a little background, if you're not seeing this, right, it comes in a hand carved wooden box. It's got um, metal miniatures to replace the little pawns that you use. They're little sculpted dragons and griffins. But this is, this is my favorite part. So the instruction booklet is emblazoned on a bamboo scroll like a literal, like little wood bamboo scroll. Um, of course, there's a nice hand-woven player mat to place the tiles. The tiles are all little acrylic tiles. So, you know, it's it's very luxury, right? And so that's kind of what this poll was about. Now, when this game came up on Kickstarter, there's a certain segment of the board game reviewer crowd, kind of the get-off-my-lawn old man crowd, kind of the, the the reviewers that have been around for 5 to 10, 15 years, those seem to be the ones most common, that just threw up their hands in the air and started saying that it's the end of the hobby. This game came out, it's the end of the hobby. So I wanted to get some opinions and ask how other people felt about them. So I asked four questions on this poll. I said, number one, I need them. Number two, they're cool. Number three, no interest, but fine. And number four, I wish they didn't exist. Because, you know, I wanted to hear if it was more people than just this small handful of people that really really hated that these things existed. So let me ask you guys now, have you, if you've seen this Zero, what do you think of it? What do you think of like super premium versions of, you know, kind of traditional board games in general? Yeah, I just took a look at this, Tim. And you know what? I think it's cool. I'm not going to buy it for 350 bucks, but if somebody wants to, good for them. 
I think this thing is a piece of art. You go and look at it, it's beautiful. Everything's, it's just extraordinary looking. And if you want something striking, especially if you love this game and you spill like, and you feel like spending 350 bucks, go for it, man. This thing's going to be beautiful. It's going to be a piece of art on your table. You're going to have it. It's like one of those luxury chess sets or a go set that's made out of this fine quality materials and looks amazing. It's going to be a conversation piece. And then maybe you invite some people to play. If it's sitting out on a coffee table or a special table in your room, I don't know. I think it's pretty amazing. I have no problem with this. I don't think it's the end of the hobby at all. I think it's just a kind of a novelty situation. All I can say is, wow. I mean, this thing is amazing. It's like definitely a work of art. Although I don't think I'd let anybody play it. I'd be like, man, get your hands off my Suro set. You can't, you can't touch that. And overall, I love those Lux editions. I think they're so cool. I enjoy playing on them. I really do think it, it enhances the play, the play experience. So I will often get them if I have a game that I really love. Now, having said all that, I also appreciate that not everybody wants to or can spend the money to buy those things. So I really think it's better if you have those Lux editions that they're on games that you can also get reasonably priced versions as well. And Suro is a great example because you can spend $350 if you're a huge Suro fan, but if not, you can spend the $20 or $30 and get the basic version and still have all the fun playing that game without having to spend all the money. Just a quick side thing too on this, that until I saw this, I thought that the first hobby game that I ever bought was Imhotep. Until I realized that this game was actually considered a serious hobby game because my wife bought a copy of this for us years before I ever bought my copy of Imhotep, years before I ever even heard of hobby gaming. And there we were, like, I don't know, proto gamers buying a copy of Suro. I feel so cool now. Yeah, I wouldn't call it a serious hobby game. And that's kind of the point here, right? It's it's kind of an entry weight, you know, game. It's it's pretty simple. Uh, it's, it's not really a, a strategy game, but it, it's a fun, you know, it's a fun board game. You know, it's a filler, Chris. I don't know if you remember this, but we actually played this over at, um, uh, who was that? Uh, Vinny and Sarah's house. Uh, one time we played, I think one of the newer editions of it, but it was just a filler game. We had 15, 20 minutes while we were waiting to get started with the game night and we sat down and played a game of this. So, you know, that's kind of where this fits. It's a filler. So it is, it's interesting as a, as a game that they picked for a super premium luxury version, you know, it's a, it's a generally pretty inexpensive game. Uh, my feelings fit with you guys pretty well here, right? Like, I wouldn't buy Suro Super Luxury Edition because I don't like Suro that much. It's probably never going to get pulled out. But I did just spend, uh, you know, I spent like $135 to back the new Castles of Burgundy. And there is a less expensive version of that nice game. But I went a little bit more luxury because it's a game I love. It's a game that's going to get a ton of play. It's kind of a showcase game for me. I've introduced new people to hobby with it. So I think it's worth investing a little bit. And I, I like to have something to show off like that. So I, I generally feel pretty good about these. But Chris, I like what you said too. You know, that it, if it's the only way that you can get it is to buy the super luxury version, then it does exclude some people from that, that game. But you guys realize that this happens all the time with Kickstarter. I mean, you can't buy Marvel United with all the content for less than five or $600. So that has excluded a lot of people from a lot of that content. And yet people weren't so up in arms over that game, yet they are over this really right, nice, beautiful version of a game that might have a lot of love. So, you know, I, I kind of feel like this is not a, a particularly negative thing. Let me read what some, uh, some of our listeners posted on the poll. 
Maurice Andrews Jr., who is a fairly, he's got a new YouTube channel, so he's a fairly new reviewer, seems like a really interesting guy to follow, so check out his reviews. But he said, I'm fine with it as long as it has a standard version and the deluxe doesn't include extra content. People bling out their games all the time. Have you seen the prices for those Marvel Champions tokens? I'm sure there are others out there, but the bling opened the door for Deluxe. So, you know, he's right. And, and it kind of agrees with us on that. Let's see. Uh, Sarah Reed said, I chose their cool because if it's a game I want, I'll buy it. If it's not, I'm happy it exists for those who do want it. I'm not here to yuck someone's young as long as it's not hurting anyone. Considering all the big pricey games out there, these are hardly the biggest problem. And that's kind of what I was saying, right? It's like there's so many big expensive games any, anyway that having a luxury version of a game is not that big of a deal. But there's one last one that I really wanted to comment here. And there are a whole bunch of other great comments here. So go check out this, this poll on Twitter. Uh, but this was from Jason from Shelf Stories. So Jason is a reviewer. Um, he's a content creator and, and a, a real advocate for minorities in the hobby. He said, my vote is for I don't mind them, but I'm weary about how many of them we're seeing. And I don't really agree with Jason, although I don't come from the same perspective as he does. Uh, but I had actually read some posts that Jason made on a similar question just a couple days earlier. So there is a board game reviewer named Dan Thoreau, who I follow on Twitter, does great written reviews. Um, and he kind of commented on this whole controversy as well, just seeing the response that some people were saying. And he said, so I don't get why deluxe board games are such a terrible thing. Are they really crowding out innovation? Seems like we see more innovative games every year. Pushing up prices, I don't think that's due to deluxification. Putting off newcomers, I doubt newcomers ever see them. And Jason had responded on that post. So I, I told Jason I'd go ahead and share some of what he said here. Um, but Jason's post was generally, uh, you know, his first post was, we're not getting more popular, broadly appealing, accessible games. The age of modern tent poles is over. What gets the attention now? Bigger productions, more complex games. And we're pulling up a drawbridge around our hobby. You know, I, I just want to say, go and read Dan's and Jason's interaction on there. And I... I think it's really interesting. I actually retweeted it on our Facebook page as well. Or I sorry, our Twitter our Twitter page. That interaction is pretty interesting because I don't agree with Jason. Again, I come from a different perspective than he does. I think the reason tent poles may not exist in the same way is really just because of the huge number of games that are coming out. So there's there's a lot of things I don't agree with. But I think Dan and Jason had some interesting interactions. Jason made some good points, and I think I generally agree with a lot of Dan's responses to them. So I thought that was a pretty interesting conversation on that. Here's how people answered the poll. So 4% said I need them. 37% said they're cool. I think I said they're cool too, right? Like even the ones that I will never buy, like this Tsuro or this uh, Catan 3D version, I think it's awesome. I think they're very cool that people who are really into Catan can can pick that up direct from the manufacturer. Uh, 53 said no interest, but fine. And then 6% said, I wish they didn't exist. So there's a small percentage that for some reason really don't like these out here. People like Jason who are saying that he thinks it's making the hobby less approachable. I think some people, it's an element of like FOMO. Like they feel like they want to have that deluxe edition, but because they can't afford it or don't want to spend their money on it, they, it makes them feel bad. You know, that, that perspective is interesting to me. Like if it's not a game that I care that much about, then it, it doesn't bother me at all that other people are going to have it. You know, it's a $350 game. You could buy four or five other games. And most of these hobbyists who are complaining about this probably did buy five or six other games that they're only going to play once. But this was, you know, that they opted not to spend their money on. So it's, it's choices, right? It's like you got a budget, you got a hobby, you can only spend so much. This might be the right thing to spend your money on if you're going to play Zero a lot or you want to have a showcase but it might be five or six other games. So I just think it's a trade-off. I'm not I'm not really sure why it's such a big deal to have nice luxury things. Yeah, Tim, the answer I put here on the poll was they're cool. I think luxury games are cool. If they're available and if you want them, 
You can go and get it. And if you don't want them, you don't have to go and get it. And then I do agree that hey, if the if there's some exclusive content in this luxury version, uh, that kind of irks me a little bit. Like you're going to have to pay extra if you want to get the full thing going on here. You know, if that piece of the game is considered essential, that gets a little frustrating for me. Make the game approachable and accessible, easy to get a hold of. And then if you want to add this little extra niche 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 stuff put that out there later on or provide you know make it available to the people and then that luxury that deluxe edition should be for the people who really want it who really want to have that showcase piece like you were saying that's kind of mine uh, where i sit on uh, on this luxury games piece yeah honestly i think you guys said it all i agree completely all right cool well let's move into the main event uh, last year we did our top 10 games of all time last summer had a great time with that list but we played a lot more games since then, and so I was excited to expand this out a little bit. And so we're going to do our top 30 games of all time, again, starting today with number 21 through 30. We're going to be counting backwards from here. How did you guys find making this list this year? Did you find it easy to do? What, what was the mechanism? What was the technique that you used to put this list together? Well, I did the same old thing. I went to the Pub Meeple ranking engine, imported all the games I had played, from Board Game Geek, you can just type in your username and it goes and looks at all the games you have rated from Board Game Geek. Brings them all over. You can exclude some if you have some very low rate. You know, this one's definitely not going to be in my top 30, top 50, top whatever. You can just get it out of there. I think I imported 90 games and I compared just because I was interested to see how these would all stack up against each other and see what Pub Meeple spat out. So, after 300-something comparisons, it spat out this ordered list, 1 through 90. And then I kind of looked at that, and I said, well, I don't know if that feels totally right here. Maybe I'll swap this with this one and put this one here and this one here. And that's kind of how I did it. And as I was going through each game, I, I went through with the assumption that I was playing this game under ideal circumstances. So like Empires of the Void, for instance. Let's say I was going over to Tim's house. It is already set up. I remembered all the rules. <laughs> so some of this stuff is like kind of unbelievable, right? The setup for that game takes forever. <laughs> There's a lot of corner case rules and this and that. But I assumed that I hadn't forgotten any of the rules and it was all set up and ready to go. And that was how I ranked the games. And I did something very similar to what Adam did. But just to add, in case anybody's not familiar with Pub Meeple, basically what it does is it takes all these games and it throws out these pairs to you. And you just tap the one that you'd like to play between those two, which is a really interesting way of doing it because it kind of gets at what do I want to play right now? I was thinking that when I did this list, I was going to end up with a lot of like weird little oddities where I'd have to go back to the list and be like, yeah, you know, that one's a flash in the pan. And or maybe that's one that I just had one good experience with and I'm going to have to read, you know, adjust a whole bunch of things within my ranking to actually have it make sense. But I didn't. When I looked at my rankings at the end, I thought, you know, there's some at the lower end of the top 30. There were some ones that were flashes in the pan and there were a few things that had kind of I had limited data on. But when I got up to about the top 15, the top 10 and definitely the top five, other than a couple of notable exceptions, they were all ones that were tried and true and I really felt reflected my taste in games. The one other thing I'll say about my methodology was there were a bunch of games, generally ones that I really like, that I took out just because I didn't feel like they fit with this process. And a good example is Star Realms. Probably my favorite game of all time, or certainly one of my favorite games of all time. But when I'm clicking through the 
this game versus that game, it's pretty rare that I'd say, oh yeah, let's not play Eclipse tonight. Instead, let's play a round of Star Realms. It's just a different kind of game. So I took those out and tried to focus on the heavier games, the ones that you'd play as the centerpiece of a big game night. And so that's kind of where I went. I also use the Pub Meeple ranking engine. I found it really tough. Here, here's what I did. I uploaded everything that was ranked a nine or higher from Board Game Geek. And then I took off anything that I'd only played once. Uh, sorry, that I ranked a nine or higher. I took off everything that I'd only played once. And I took off anything that was a legacy game. So those were two rules I set for myself. The legacy game version, just because as I was starting to go through one of these comparisons the first time around, I realized that it was really hard for me to compare a legacy game that I loved, but I would never probably play again against something that I knew I was going to play again in the future. And so I just felt like it was kind of skewing the way I was ranking these games against each other. And then I took out the ones mainly just because there were a few games that I've only played once. And in most cases, those were played online like Tabletop Simulator, and they may have been an unfinished version, like a like a you know pre-production version because this was when a Kickstarter campaign was active or something like that. So it was only a couple games that got pushed off because of that. A couple examples were Voidfall which I just don't know how to rank since it was really an unfinished, like they've changed a lot since that. And then Wayfarers of South Tigris, which I loved, but we only played it once. And I, you know, I definitely felt like I wanted to have another experience in real life and stuff like that. So I could see those making my list in a future year, but they just weren't even in the ranking this year. But I had a really, really tough time. There were so many times I'd be clicking through this link. I ended up, because I only did games that were ranked nine or higher, I think only would, ended up with like 43 games to rank, which was awesome. But it still gave me like something like 122 choices to pick through. But holy cow, was it tough sometimes I get two options on the screen and just be like like a deer in headlights for two minutes trying to decide how I would pick those two. So I think that speaks a lot to the fact that this list is our top 30, but a lot of these could easily have been switched around for me. You know, like probably my my top five are, are definitely the cream of the crop. But once you get into like 10 through 30, they're all great games and they probably all could have fallen anywhere in that list. So but it's still fun to just kind of see how, as you approach the top, how much more excited you are about those games. So yeah, I, I think that will kind of talk, you know, wrap up what we want to say about our methodology. So let's jump right into the list. And I'm going to start here with my number 30 best game of all time. And that game for me is Res Arcana by Tom Lehman. Uh, Res Arcana is a game we've talked about a couple times on the show. It's a Fairly simple little engine builder with a fantasy theme on it. And it does a couple things that I really love. One is that there's this uh, kind of game mechanism or sequence that happens with a lot of games I like, where it's basically just a series of people taking turns back and forth. You can take a turn and collect some resources. You can take a turn and turn resources in for something else. And you just keep taking turns back and forth until the game's over. In this case, the game ends when one player gets to 10 points. But it's always a tense race for that 10 points a lot of the time it can come down to the last turn um there, it's a fun engine builder in that you basically start the game with eight cards in your deck three in your hand so there's five more you're going to draw and every turn you're basically going to either play one of the cards in your deck you're going to activate a card you've played already um, and then you can purchase these these kind of artifacts or other things out of the middle of the board which usually also have engine building built into it so it's just a fun game to every time just look at what you got try to make the best of it and super fun if you play it with an advanced variant you draft the cards at the beginning of the game so you can kind of put together a little bit of a deck that you could build up to over the course of the game 
I love this game. I love the production. The artwork is beautiful. It's one of my favorite my favorite fantasy productions in a game. And for a simple little small box engine builder that's just a couple piles of cards, it's got these great little wooden components and a tray that you pop out of the box. You don't have to set anything up. It's super easy to get started. I've added both the expansions into this, which I think helps, which probably pushes a little bit higher because it gives you a lot of variety. A couple little extra mechanisms that don't make the game any less fun or you know more challenging or anything like that. But there's just so many stacks of cards cards that every time you play you're going to get a different eight cards in your deck you're going to get some different cards in the middle of the game i just love res arcana so i was happy to have this pull up on my top 30 tim you mentioned tom layman in race and i can't help but think of race for the galaxy one of my favorite tom layman games which i have ranked at number 55 on my list a great tableau builder it's quick it plays in about 20 minutes boom 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 if you can figure out this esoteric barrage of iconography and learn that Sanskrit and you're in, you learn the game and it's fun. So that's the hardest part is the barrier to entry there, learning that that iconography. Well, I was going to say though that that's one of the nice things about, I think, about Res Arcana is that the iconography is super easy. Like there is no confusion there and it's easy to teach someone this game. It's easy to sit down and start playing it right away. And I can pull this out of the box three months from now and I won't even have to check a rule at all. It's it's so clear and easy to play, but fun, tough choices to make in the game. My number 30 game is a game that you guys recently introduced to me. It is Nemesis, designed by Adam Kwapinski, and the publisher is Awaken Realms. This is where you're on a spaceship, you're waking up. It's like Aliens. Alien, Aliens, the board game. There's potentially a hidden traitor. I didn't think I'd be into this one. Tim, you didn't think you'd be into this one. But we played it. It was awesome. There's all kinds of narrative, all kinds of story here. There's, uh, what's what's Tim's objective? Is he going to try to kill me? I think Tim's going to try to kill me here. What am I supposed to do now? And what's Chris up to? Why is he meddling around in the control room trying to change our destination? Why don't we just go to Earth like we're supposed to do and, and save everybody? What the heck's going on here? So you're there's all this suspicion, all this doubt. Everybody's lying to each other. It's good if you're playing with a group of friends that you don't mind BSing with and backstabbing with and getting rowdy with, then it's fun. Our last game, it was a total co-op situation that we had figured out by the end of it. And I ended up dying heroically to try to save you guys to get off the ship. What a fun game. What a fun experience. It's going to be different every time you play it. My number 30, Nemesis. I'm so gratified that you guys enjoyed this game. It's that thing where, you know, you, you're the one who picks the restaurant and you hope everybody really likes it. Like, this is a game that I really pushed that nobody else thought they were going to like. And the fact that you did makes me feel really good. On top of the fact that I really love this game myself. And I'll just mention, too, that this didn't make my list, but I did make number 34 on my rankings. So shockingly to me, a month ago, I would have said there's no way this would ever be in my top 50. This was such a fun experience. I'm excited to go back to it at some point. So, yeah, very cool game. So my number 30 brought back a lot of really nice memories because it was our first ever episode of Board Game Hot Takes. And that is Pan Am by Prospero Hall, published by Funko Games. What a fun game this is. A midweight, but feels really good on your brain. It's got incredibly cool theming. For anybody who hasn't seen it, it's about the heyday of Pan Am and the luxury days of air travel. The art looks like straight out of the old travel posters. You feel like you're in it. And it's even got the little history cards that you play each round where it tells a little bit of the story of Pan Am and then incorporates that into the game. It's got, for an inexpensive game, very pleasant components. It's got a cool board. It's a huge board. 
every time I've played this game, I've just had such a good time. I mean, the action selection mechanism, I think we talked about in our action selection episode, how you go around the board doing these little mini auctions for actions. So much fun, so enjoyable. I love getting this. Actually, I feel like I'm due for a game of Pan Am anytime now. And so I was super happy to see that one pop up on my top 30 list. Chris, it's so funny that this came up for you and that you just mentioned it because as I was prepping for this episode, I went back and listened to a few past reviews just to kind of refresh my memory a little bit about some games we played in the past. And I went back and shouldn't have done this, but I listened to our episode zero, the very first episode we played. Listeners, don't go back and listen to that episode. It is just (laughs) terrible. It's terrible. But it did remind me how much fun I had playing the game. So I'm actually really excited to go back and play this one also. Pan Am's at number 38 on my list, Chris. I love this game. I wish the stock market had a little more to it than just a, a flip of a card. Maybe if they had, or I'm going to become a fake game designer here. Maybe if they had something <laughs> on the cards, I was thinking about this a lot. If you had something on the cards that you bought that round that said, okay, the stock's going to go up if you purchase this card. The stock's going to go down if you purchase it. So that way there's a little bit of manipulation involved in the round for the for the next round. I think something like that would be absolutely cool. But what a great game. I'm glad you brought it up, Chris. Pan Am, cool. Adam, we know you like to uh, house rule games. So it That's seems right. perfect for you to play around. <laughs> uh, all right, so my number 29 is Cthulhu Death May Die. This is a a big box of plastic miniatures from Eric Lang and Come On Games. If you would have told me that I was going to like this game, I would have been more surprised than Nemesis. I remember when this first came up on Kickstarter, and Chris, I was just trying to get him into the hobby a little bit, and I knew he was a, a fan of H.P. Lovecraft's writings and, you know, kind of the Cthulhu mythos, and I knew he was a fan of big production, and I was like, Chris, you got to check this game out. And he immediately backed it and got so excited about it. But I still remember the day that he it got delivered. I was We were due to have a game night, so I went to his house. I brought a couple fun games, and he's like, dude, we got to pull out Cthulhu Death May Die, and I was totally sad because I thought it was going to ruin my game night. I was like, there's no way I'm going to want to sit down, play this silly co-op game with Chris. And I had a blast playing it. I had so much fun. It's such a cool set of mechanisms where you kind of mix together the old ones deck and the scenario deck. And so, you know, the kind of the challenge you're dealing with every time is going to come up differently depending on that blend that you've got. But the, the my favorite part of it is the characters. There is a whole bunch of slightly asymmetric characters that all have different abilities you can unlock. And you unlock the abilities as you go up this madness track, which is going to get you closer and closer to death if you get too high. But the higher you go up that track, you get to unlock these abilities, and they're all very unique and different. Every character has at least one row of abilities. It's completely unique to them, but they also have a bunch of abilities that could tie with others, but they're all fun. It's always cool as you see your characters get super powerful as they you know get, get higher in madness. And the game always ends up in like almost always sometimes you can just get killed within a few rounds that's unusual but it can happen but most of the time we found that you get you know you get your characters worked up you'd start clearing the deck but then you go and face the great old one and the great old one gets more and more powerful the more damage you do to him and it almost always comes down to like the final dice roll as to whether you win or lose this game such a blast i actually just pulled this out i had i had covid a few weeks ago and so I had some time. I was quarantined in my house, wanted to stay away from my, my family so they didn't get sick. And I wasn't feeling great, so I, I took a little time off work. But when I wasn't sleeping, I set up Cthulhu Death May Die and played several solo scenarios of this, just kind of working my way from scenario one up, picking a different great old one every time, picking different characters every time. I had such a fun time of it. 
and I cannot wait to uh, continue playing through this. I think I've played through the whole like season one, which is the main box of scenarios. And I'm kind of working my way through those a second time, but I haven't even touched. I bought the expansion, the season two expansion. I haven't touched any of the scenarios in that one. So I've got a lot to explore there. And there's a ton of characters that just always mix it up every time. This is the only co-op game that I actually enjoy playing co-op with other people, but it's also a great, it's a great solo experience. It's, it's fun. It's just, I don't know. I don't know how Eric Lang does this to me. Did it with Blood Rage did it with Cthulhu Death May Die. It takes these these games that just do not fit with what I think I like about games and makes me actually enjoy them. So Cthulhu Death May Die is my number 29. It's the evil magic of Eric Lang. <laughs> Tim, this one also made my list at number 90 out of 90 that I imported. <laughs> I had a bad experience with it. You were there that night the first time and first and only time I got to play it. I think it was after we played Eclipse, after we did something, that was the the follow-on game that I played. There was a member of the group that absolutely hated the game, an older gentleman who was like, we just need to die, and he kept rolling the dice and trying to do things to intentionally be dead, and I was like, oh, yeah. So I think I had a bad experience. I didn't get to see the full nuances or many of the nuances of the game. I'd like to go back to this one. Sadly, this one made the bottom of my list just because of that one experience. So I'm realizing a lot of these board games are very group dependent you know i actually think this would be a fantastic game for our group for you me uh you me chris and steve to get together and play this co-op like there is no other game i would recommend this to but i think we'd have a blast playing this game co-op the four of us it'd be a lot like nemesis i guess without the hidden traitor the you know yeah kind of the nervousness of are are people going to mess with me but just fun to kind of explore this go up against this big baddie and and chuck some dice and yeah this is a cool game well, my number 29, and this was a big surprise to me. I've talked about how this one's going to leave my collection and this and that. But after playing ARCs a little bit, I realized kind of the coolness of this game. This is Space Core 2025 to 2300 AD. I've been not so hot on this game a lot in the podcast. This is a game designed by John H. Butterfield, and the publisher is GMT Games. And what you're doing in this game is kind of a race game. You're trying to go out and colonize different points initially in the nearby solar system. So like the moon and Mars and Venus and just the local solar system. And then somebody gets beyond that out past, I think it's Mars, I want to say. And then you flip the board over. There's a phase two. You can stop right there if you want to and tally up the scores see who has the most, uh, I think it's profit or something like that. You're these corporations trying to, you know, make the most profit off these planets in the solar system. So you can stop there or you can go to era number two, which is a little bit further beyond uh, towards the outer solar system and the asteroid belt. So you can start mining the asteroid belt. You can move out to Jupiter. You can build these little spaceports here and there in the garage points or on asteroids. And it has all real stuff. So it's very nonfiction type of a game. Nonfiction in that it's based on real stuff, but none of this stuff has happened yet. And there's aliens. So a little bit of fiction in there as well. In the second phase, you're expanding out further towards the edge of the solar system, which is uh, even poor little Pluto's on there, disregarded Pluto. He makes an appearance and you can go out towards the, the Oort cloud, I think is the last spot on this one. Then guess what? There's another board and it's all these local star systems and you get out to these star systems and you have to deal with the length of time. it gets. So anyway, this game evolves over time. There's three distinct separate eras. It does a lot of cool things 
that the more I am separated from it, the more I'm like, wow, you know what? This is really neat. I need to go back and explore this one more. It has an amazing, I don't want to say amazing. It has a very nice, easy to manage solo mode. This is Space Core 2025. 2380, my number 29 game. 2025 is coming up really fast. Sure is. <laughs> this is a game I wouldn't mind trying at some point. I have a feeling it's going to be a, I don't know. You know, I don't know what to, know, to think about this game, to be honest. It feels a little dry. I think the production is so weak, typical GMT, you know, like nonsense. But I think this was probably one of the ones on their list that I, I probably want to play the most. Yeah, I can't argue the production is a little dry. They could have done a lot more with the cars and some people say the cards are great. There's a little tiny picture and big old text. I wish it was, you know, a big, huge picture with text that was, I don't know, whatever. I'm not a designer. It's a GMT design, yeah. and that's what you're going to get. There are lots of chits, but it plays pretty neat. So I, I don't know, Tim. You might enjoy it, especially for the solo mode. All right. Well, my number 29 game is Aquatica, designed by Ivan Tuzovsky and published by Cosmodrome Games. This is a game that we reviewed uh, several months ago, so go back and listen if you're really interested. But man, what a fun game. We, we played this game first on Tabletop Simulator, and then we played it in real life at TimCon, and I think we played it three times total, I feel like, or maybe it was two. But a great game, so much fun. It has really great production. It's got beautiful art. The actions in this game are so much fun. It's a deck builder that includes these action cards. They're location cards that you can collect. They have what are called depths on these location cards. And once you've collected the card, you can use other actions from your the cards in your deck to change the depth on it. And every depth you move to gives you some additional benefit until you finally get down to the deepest depth, and then you get a whole bunch of points. And it's such a thrill doing that, moving those cards down and getting these big bonuses every time you do. And especially if you're playing the physical version, there's this great board where you slot those cards in and they fit so nicely and it looks so good and such a fun game. And again, the art on this one, it's this kind of surrealistic underwater art where the people look kind of like fishes and it's this combo human marine life thing that is just a, a thrill to look at so absolutely a blast it's one we haven't played in a while and actually i feel like it's one that at some point i might want to get because it was so much fun and it's not a huge investment in time either pretty svelte game uh really enjoyable definitely deserves to be number 29 on my list the anglerfish will give you nightmares now this this game for a small box engine builder has one of the coolest productions i've ever seen it does have really great art the player boards are awesome but this little slot in uh dual layer player board for the cities is just so it's so satisfying to kind of slide this thing up here until you you know hide some of the icons and reveal new ones and stuff uh really fun game i think the only reason this game hasn't been higher for me is i felt like both the games we played it went a, it, it outstayed its welcome a little bit like it went just a little bit longer than i felt it showed up for the length of for the type of game if it didn't i think it probably would be much higher for me but i also would be happy to play this game anytime i think it's very fun very very clever uh little combo actions you can do with it in case anyone's keeping track of my list at home this one's at number 71 for me between rococo number 72 and hellenica the story of greece I had fun with this game. Yeah, Tim, it does stay a little long for me. But, you know, with repeated plays, I think you'd find those combos. You get to know it really well. And the theme is cool. The cards are cool. It is a pretty fun game. 
All right, so my number 28. Now, this is probably going to be a surprise to you guys because my number 29 was a co-op game. My number 28 is a party game. And that game is Codenames, designed by Vlada Shavadl and published by Czech Games Edition. Codenames still remains to this day. I've, I've probably been playing this game for six or seven years. Still remains to this day my favorite party style game. Now, my wife would argue that this is not a party game because the minute you sit down with four to six people, the room gets silent as people are trying to figure out what their clues are going to give or trying to guess what the other people, what the clues were that the other people were giving them. Uh, but I disagree. This is exactly my type of party game. You're working together with other teammates. There's fun, exciting moments when somebody guesses the wrong card or the right card. In case you don't know how this, this plays, it's basically a game where there's a series of essentially words out on the board. And they're, they're arranged in a grid. And the players that are giving the hints, both teams can see which players, which of those cards are theirs and which of the cards are the opponent's cards, um, but the people who are doing the guessing don't know. So you're basically trying to give a hint. And so you would give a hint. Let's say you would say animal for two. And what that means is that you're trying to tell the people that are guessing from you that there are two cards out there that are represented by animals and it, they can guess one and they could stop there if they want to, but they could guess up to two and they can even take a, a third guess if they want to push their luck and just get lucky. But what happens so often is that I would say animal for two. And the second that I said that, I'd see that one of my opponent's cards also could be considered an animal. And then I'm just on the edge of my seat waiting to see if they guess the ones that I was thinking of or if they guess the wrong one. And to throw an extra little mix in there, there's always one face down card that the two clue givers know, which is going to be the assassin. If your teammate picks up the assassin, you immediately lose. So it's just a fun back and forth little party game where you're trying to work with your teammates. I've had a blast with this. I think my favorite way to play is four players. Six isn't bad. Get too much higher than that and it gets a little bit too chaotic. But I always have a fun time with this. This is one of those rare games where I will play this anytime with any group of people and we'll usually have a really good time with it. Codenames is just a fantastic game, Tim. I'm glad you brought it up. I added this in my list too. Just because I have 90 games, there's some games at the at the bottom of that 90, that doesn't mean I don't want to play them. I love all these games that are in my top night, which is a shocker to me. I didn't think there was 90 games out there I liked, but I do. Codename sitting at number 64 for me. Chris, have you played this one? I think I played it once with Tim mm-hmm. and his wife. My wife and I played with you guys, yeah. and I don't remember much about it other than I think I had a good time. I have a good, I have a warm feeling about it from the memory. Yeah, if I remember right, Chris, I think that was the night that we went to like there was a charity auction or something, and you know how charity auctions go, where they're always the alcohol is running free. Uh, they're trying to get you to mm. bid on stuff, and so we probably played it when you just don't have a good memory of the rest of that evening. But I remember that night, and I I remember having fun with you guys as well. Yeah, I don't have a good memory <laughs> of it, but I have a lot of good memories of it. Nice. Well, from. Fantastic word association to fantastic resource management. And one of the games that's just dear to my heart and an introduction to me into the world of hobby board gaming. My number 28 game is Terraforming Mars. This game has been way up higher on my list at times. It's slowly trickling down to number 28 here. But this game is designed by Jacob Frixelius and released by the publisher is Frix Games. Uh, also, publishes actually Stronghold Games here in the USA, at least it was at one point, the version I have. What you're doing here, if you haven't heard of Terraforming Mars, is you're trying to terraform Mars, you're trying to make it habitable. And that is just such a cool theme for a resource management game. Why is it so hard for people to come up with cool themes for resource management? So you have 
I believe there's six different areas on your personal player board that get produced in the production phase and you can up those during the round you can up your production in each of these six different areas so by the time you're in like turn six seven eight you're producing all of this stuff you got all these cubes and you can spin them all to put out some forests or put out a city or you can buy all these you can play all these expensive patents that you've been saving the whole game you can earn these tags each of these cards has these different tags on it and those accumulate and that gets you more power so you feel extremely powerful by the end of the game with all the actions you can do and there's a race element you're trying to raise the temperature you're trying to increase the oxygen and you're trying to put out these oceans on mars and make it happen it's just so cool what a great theme some of the cards i just have hilarious artwork pets these little dogs it's just a picture of a dog what a joke but also freaking hilarious this is terraforming mars my number 28 game my intro into the hobby world of board games i love it terraforming mars adam i was shocked that this didn't make your top 10 last year and i'm more shocked that it's all the way up at number 28 this year but that's cool that means there's got to be a lot of great games coming on your list so i can't wait i hope so many great games adam let me can i can i just can can please tell me that this year you didn't add a game to your list that you hadn't played yeah, like you did last year to your top ten with Kemet Blood and Sand. Um, I don't have to divulge anything to you, Tim. Okay. <laughs> You're not the boss of him, Tim. All right. Well, with my game number 28, I took a little darker turn with This War of Mine, the board game, designed by Michael Orach and Jakob Wisniewski and published by Awaken Realms Games. This is one that I had to do a little bit of soul searching on because... It's hard to get yourself to sit down and play this game. For those who aren't familiar, it's an incredibly serious game. It's not intended to be fun. It's intended to be an experience. You are a civilian living in a war-torn city, and the game is divided into two phases. There's phase one, the day phase, when you stay in your house. You're basically hiding out. You don't leave because you don't want to get killed. And you're scrounging around looking for food, things that you might use to make the necessities of life. And then in trying to stay alive. And then there's the evening phase when you go out into town and scrounge in town trying to find those same kinds of things. But there, dealing with the outside world and the various dangers that are out there, including like thieves and, and thugs and all the things that make life difficult and dangerous. This is a game, it's so hard to win. I've never won a game of this and I probably played it a dozen times. But I don't think you're supposed to. Part of what they're trying to do in this game is to show the horrors of war and create some empathy for people who might be in that scenario. And there's this huge book of little mini vignettes that you refer to throughout the game that give you little bits of the personalities of your character and some insight into what they're thinking and what they're doing. And it just puts you so deeply into the game emotionally that I had to put this on there in part because the game is so well-made, and in part because I just appreciate what Awaken Realms was doing. I'm shocked this game even got published, but it did, and it's a great game, and it's actually one that I've been thinking recently of taking back out again and playing because it is so compelling, and I want to put myself back in that world just to put myself in that thoughtful space. And this is actually a game, interestingly, that is a can be a multiplayer co-op game, but I would never want to play it that way. It's almost like a meditation to me. I would want to sit there and play it by myself and think through the predicaments that I was in and try to put myself in that empathetic space 
and really sit there with this and get the full emotional impact of this game. So that was my number 28. This is a game that I had once said I would never want to play because it just felt so dark and rough. But the more you've talked about it, Chris, this is a game I actually do really want to try at some point. Solo, of course. But yeah, this this sounds really fascinating. It sounds like a really interesting experience to go through. Love hearing your tales about this game, Chris. I love hearing the saga and just how depressing and horrible and tremendous and involved it sounds. So uh, you can play that, and I want to hear the stories that you tell about it. So my number 27 is almost as surprising to me as Adam's number 28 was to me. And that is Underwater Cities by Vladimir Suchi. Wow. Yeah, the reason this is so surprising to me is because this was in my top 10 last year. I think it was like number eight, maybe. Um, And this is a game that I love. I mean, there's a lot that I love about it. It's one of my favorite action selection mechanisms, as I've mentioned before. I love the mix of worker placement with the little deck of cards where if you can match up the color on the card, you get that extra bonus. That's still a really great activity for me. But there's a lot of games that have that I've played since then that I think have started to kind of take over what I really loved about this game. And I, the more I play it, it, it's like the game is just slightly on the side of heavy to keep it into super fun territory for me. Like, it's just a little bit too much of a brain burn for me to feel like I'm excited to get it out regularly. And I think that is something I'm going to mention a couple more times as we go through this top 30 games. But uh, still a great game. Uh, I think there's also something a little bit about the idea that Every time you play, you're building out a city, and it's kind of redundant actions. But I still do really like it. I like the variety and worker placement spaces, and again, I love those card bonuses. So this is still a great game, game that's going to stay in my collection. It's dropped a little bit for me, but I still love Underwater Cities. Tim, this game, somehow it didn't make it into my list. My whole list is invalid. It didn't make it in there. My whole ranking system, (laughs) throw it out the window. I don't know where it would be. I think it would be somewhere in the 40 to 50 range. Okay. That's surprising that to hear it drop so much for you. That's a pretty fun game. But maybe more surprising will be my number 27, which is new to me, very recently new to me, Ghosts of Christmas. This game is designed by Taki Shinzawa and published by BoardGameTables.com here in the United States. This is the trick taker. I recently talked about it on one of the podcasts. And it involves a little bit of time travel in quotes. So you have the past, the present, the future. Um, You can kind of play it. If there's three players, it's going to be like a three by three grid. Each player is going to play a card in the past and in the present and the future. Player one can pick past, present, future. Where do you want to play it? And that becomes the lead suit for that era of time. Next player can either follow suit in that era or go to the one of the other time slots and put a lead suit in there. And there is a trump suit, so it is more of a traditional trick taker. But when you go to resolve these, you resolve the past first. So whoever wins the past sets the lead suit for the next era. So whoever wins the past sets a lead suit for the present, which might not be the first card that was played during the course of play. And then similarly for the future, whoever won the present is going to set the lead suit for the future. It's crazy. So it's hard to wrap your brain around. It's very novel. It's super cool, super fun. It's a trick taker. So Chris, you might not be into it, but maybe I'll force it on you one time or not. Whatever, we don't have to play it. It's fun for me. Sarah enjoys it a bunch. We had fun playing this one. That is the Ghosts of Christmas. My wife and I were listening to this episode in the car one day, and she heard your description of that, and she goes, oh, that sounds terrible. (laughs) I said, it does, doesn't it? 
but but actually in reality i would i would totally try that game because it does sound interesting and different i thought the theme looked really cool and the art is a lot of fun so maybe this is one like shamans that would surprise me even though it's a trick taker yeah, and I wanted to mention, Adam, we were just talking earlier tonight because I'm going to be in town uh, by you in about a month. And so we were talking about getting together, my wife and I, with, with you and Sarah to play a game. And I was saying, like, you know, maybe I got to get Daniel to finally learn Dune Imperium so we can play together. But then I was thinking about this game and thinking, like, this could be a great game for the four of us to sit down, hang out, get, you know, get to chat a bit and catch up and play through this little trick taker. So I'm really excited to try this one. I'm glad it's, you know, still hitting for you. Well, staying in the past, my number 27 game is Watergate, designed by Matthias Kramer and published by Frosted Games. This is such a clever game in that it ties, in a very simple game, the theme to the mechanics so effectively that I couldn't not love this game. It's also in, it's super interesting topically because I love history. The Watergate scandal is a super interesting part of American history. I actually just finished watching the series Gaslit. For anybody who hasn't seen it, it's really good. You should watch it. It's about the uh, the Nixon administration and the Watergate uh, told through the eyes of some of the, the side parties. But a lot of fun. Show worth watching. This game is a blast. The board is essentially, it looks like one of those uh, with the little strings where you have the, the journalist tying you know this thing to that thing and there's a little web of you know evidence that's going around and one it's a two-player game only one player is the Nixon administration and one player is the Washington Post and the win condition for the journalists is you have to tie two witnesses which are around the outside of the board directly to the president and if you're the Nixon administration all you have to do is stay alive until the end of the game and then you win and throughout the game, there's this push and pull where you move these this token back and forth, a momentum track, and the momentum track decides who gets control of the various pieces of evidence. If the Nixon administration gets them, they get to get rid of the evidence. If the journalists get the evidence, then they get to put it out on the board and use that to tie together the witnesses and the president. It's one of these games that just, it's simple, but it puts a smile on my face every time I play it. I don't own a copy. I borrowed a copy from a friend, and this is one that I absolutely need to buy because I kind of crave playing this game again. What what a clever uh, mix of, of theme and mechanism for a game. I, I only played this game once before, but I just loved what it was putting together in this little package. I don't know if the push and pull would feel redundant over time, but I sure had fun playing that first time. I'd like to go back to this one. Yeah, this one's at my number 42. What a fun game, Chris. I'm glad you liked this one. I think we played this one, Tim. It felt a little sleazy being the Nixon administration, but whatever. That's <laughs> kind of fun sometimes. That's a great game. Great pick, Chris. All right. So my number 26 is a newer game to me, but a game I've played a lot recently, and that's Libertalia Winds of Galecrest by Paolo Mori. And this was recently republished with the Winds of Gilcrest subtitle by Stonemaier Games. We've played the original version of this a little bit on Board Game Arena. In fact, we played it tonight. And I just have such a fun time of this little, you know, kind of take that little puzzle. Uh, every choice is super fun. You never know what you're going to hit. It's it's kind of a party game, I guess, like Codenames is, but it feels like a strategy game to me. It always feels to me like I can be clever and I can read the mind of my opponents and figure out what they're going to do. You're basically playing these cards out into a pirate ship. Everyone plays simultaneously. Whoever has the highest number gets to take the best loot for that round. But all the cards have different abilities on them, and a lot of them trigger before you take the loot. So sometimes you can 
stop the person who is at the heist from taking the loot by knocking them off the ship or you can steal some loot from somebody else or give bad loot to other people. It's so much fun. But the new Winds of Galecrest version even escalates it. It it just adds a bright, colorful theme and palette to it by making it about these sky pirates, which are anthropomorphic animals. Really beautiful art on it. Adds more cards to it from the original And I've had a ton of fun with this. My wife likes it. So we've been playing it with some kind of more casual gaming friends that we've, you know, been hanging out with recently. I played it with like four or five different groups now. Had a great time every time. I've played it at two players with the new two-player mode, which was pretty clever. I played it three players and I played it four players and always had fun with it. So this is, I think, a game that's going to stick around a long time for me. I think it's going to be one of those classics, kind of like Jamaica was for a long time. And I, I still love Jamaica, but I think this could be my new like four to six player casual game night. Just fun, throw down, you know, have a couple drinks. And, you know, here's a here's something I think you're going to find on my list this year round. And that is that fun is taking a higher spot for me. It, you know, I, I'm going to appreciate games more that actually make me smile, that I have a good time doing instead of just this heavy thinky puzzle. And so it's some things are shifting around a little bit. And I think a year ago, I probably wouldn't have put something like Libertalia, Winds of Galecrest on my list, but I've just been having a blast playing it. So it's on my list at number 26. Libertalia OG is sitting at number 75 on my list. I had fun time playing this tonight. It's rowdy. It's ruckus. I still have the theory that you could just close your eyes, pick a random card, and do, (laughs) at least I could, do just as good, if not better, than the way I played tonight by looking at cards. Yeah, well, I've seen how you played, though, Adam, so that's fair. (laughs) Yeah. This is a game that I do not love, and I've played a few games of it now. It's definitely better playing in real time. I played an async game, and I'm like, this is one of the worst gaming experiences I've ever had. (laughs) It's a lot better when you play it real time with people. But one of the things that this game suffers from is some of the most unpleasant art I've ever seen in a board game. It's just gnarly and gross-looking pirates, and I just just don't want to look at that. The original. The original. Yes, I'm sorry. The original. And I I think that the Stonemeyer reboot would probably improve a lot on that. That might actually t- turn around my opinion of this game because the art is so bad in the original. My number 26, I think, is going to surprise you guys. It's a game I probably never even talked about, but I love it. It's called Sentient. That's uh, Sentient, like it's alive. This game is designed by J. Alex Cavern and published by Renegade Game Studios. It's relatively, uh, the theme is pasted on. But the theme is rad. You know what? I don't even know why I said the theme is rad. I don't even know what the theme is. It's future robot people that are trying to do stuff. There's some um, set collection. There's some algebra. And there's some dice manipulation. So what you're doing is you're playing these cards and attempt to collect these things and score a lot of points. Like That's the worst description probably anybody's ever had of any board game ever. There's also a little bit of an auction component. So you're putting your little workers out there in an attempt to bid for these different groups of things that are going to, you know, these different, I don't know, little chevrons that are going to give you points at the end of the game. So you're collecting those and that gives you the card. You grab that card, you put it under your little player thing, and you're trying to line up all this stuff algebraically. So one card might say, okay, the left dice has to be less than the right dice. Or you grab a card and it says, all right, you can increase this left dice by one and you have to keep the right dice at the same value and if you meet all these criteria i think there's four or five cards by the end of the round if you meet all the criteria on the dice or on the cards excuse me you get the points for them so you score some points that way you collect them up 
You do this, I think, over three rounds and attempt to bid for five cards each round. And then you check for the set collection. So if you had three of these little chevrons of the green color, and if you had three green cards, I think that gives you nine extra points. It's a fun game. There's a lot going on. There's auction and there's a lot of player interaction bidding back and forth. I'm doing a horrible job of explaining it, but this game has a lot going on. The artwork is beautiful, I think. Opponents are nice. It's relatively simple, small, quick game. That is sentient. One I've had my collection for a while, but never really talked about. I used to play it a lot more. It's been sitting there. I need to get it out, play it again, play it with you guys. I don't know how you can say this game has no theme. It's got robots. It's got robots. It's robots, man. Come on, it's robots. Yeah, this game, the theme, the production looks cool here. The artwork's awesome. I love the custom, I love custom dice in general, but I really like these custom dice are cool. They have little like microchip markings on them and they're, they're bright colors. But I can see, you explained it to me and I don't think I would have understand it. I wouldn't have understood it if I wasn't looking at a picture. But looking at a picture of these cards lined up, it's very clear how they, you know, how you can score them. They kind of give you little formulas on each of the cards to score. This looks fun, man. I, I've never heard of this game before, and I've never heard you talk about it. I'd love to play this game. So, but it looks like, you know, kind of a space-based weight or like, a, you know, one of these little Splendor, one of these little engine builders that always have promise for me. They don't always hit, but this looks fun. I'd love to try it. So yeah, like I would so much rather play this than Furnace, for instance. Yeah. This has so much more theme and more going on, and it's just... It's just cool. It's cool. Yeah, it looks cool. Nice. Well, my number 26 game is Wingspan, designed by Elizabeth Hargrave and published by Stonemeyer Games. This is actually a game, one of the few games on my list that I had to move around because it actually didn't fall technically within my top 30 based on the Pub Meeple ranking. And the reason for that, I think, is because I have played this game so much to the point where I think I've over actually overplayed it a little bit. I've probably played this game more than any game at all other than Star Realms. Well, I'm sure I've played it less than Star Realms. But in terms of actual full weight board games, probably the game that I've played the most. It's the game that my family loves. It's the game that I played with friends. It's a game that I've used to introduce people to hobby board gaming. So I've played this game over and over and over again. And even though it's not something that I reach for every game night now because I want something fresh and new, what an important game this has been to me. I won't go into detail about the, or I won't go to any sense about the uh, the mechanics here because if you're listening to this podcast, it's a pretty good chance that you probably know all about Wingspan already. But this is the game that blew the doors off what you could make a board game about. And the topic is so meditative and beautiful and the art is lovely and the mechanics so elegant and I love an engine building game. So just between the great experiences that I've had playing this game and its importance to me as a hobby gamer in my history, I just had to put this in in there and 26 seemed like the right place to me to insert it. Chris, I really appreciate you putting this on your list because when I tag it on Board Game Geek, when I post this episode, it'll get a lot of views. So thank you for that. No, we actually reviewed this way back. I don't know, second or third episode. I think it was our third episode we did. We reviewed Wingspan. So yeah, it's it's cool. I'm, I'm not surprised you made up here. I think last year when we did our top 10, you also had a five honorable mansions and this was one of your honorable mentions last year. So it's cool to see it's still on your list. All right, so my number 25 is a game that's fairly new to me. We actually just reviewed this a couple months back, and I liked it quite a bit more than I expected to. And that's Great Western Trail. Uh, second edition is the version that I've been playing the most. I have tried the first edition since then as well. 
And I really like this game. And I, I can't explain how surprised I am by that because the idea of just moving around this rondelle and just taking actions as you move around doesn't sound very fun. And in fact, I played the follow-up game that Alexander Fister created, Maracaibo, well before playing this a couple years ago, and I didn't really have very much fun with it at all. But I wanted to try Great Western Trail. Also, by the way, the theme is completely undesirable to me. I have no interest in, in hanging out in the in the Old West, taking cows to Kansas City. So boring, right? But what do I love about it? I love that almost every action space as you're moving around this board, you can get a little bonus if you discard the right color or combination of color of cards. And so I have such a fun time manipulating my hand through, you know, as I'm moving around this trail and trying to get myself set up for the right actions coming up and get myself set up for this big hand of cow cards to deliver to Kansas City. Can't explain why, but I just enjoy playing this game. And I've probably played it, I don't know, 20 times in the last couple months, mostly on Board Game Arena. I still haven't played it in person. I'm interested to see if it makes it rise for me or fall for me if I'm playing it in person, you know, instead of on Board Game Arena where the rules are enforced. I think it'll rise though. I think the production on the second edition is cool. And I've just been having a really fun time playing this game. So this game was a bit of a surprise for me. I'm glad I get introduced to it finally. Great Western Trail second edition. I'm with you on this one, Tim. I've been enjoying that a lot recently too. Since you since you guys reviewed it, I wasn't on that episode, but since you did, I have another friend who introduced me to it and I played it several times on BGA. We've played it on BGA before and I think it's a lot of fun. I agree with you on this one. Well... I'm going to talk about nine, number <laughs> 25, <laughs> which is Air, Land, and Sea. This is designed by John Perry and published by Arcane Wonders. This is another little two-player card game. You're dealing out the three theaters of war there, Air, Land, and Sea. And then you're playing cards from your hand. And they all have these little tricky abilities that you can play them into each of these three theaters or face down to play in any theater you want to. They all have a little different sneaky effects. It's all about how are you going to play this card to strengthen it the best. If you win two out of three theaters, then you're going to take home the most points. You can also concede somewhere in there and your opponent will get less points than they would have if they had won two out of three at the end of the game. So that's just a nifty little aspect too. If you don't like the boring World War II theme, which I'm not too big into, they have, it's been re-implemented by Air, Land, and Sea Critters at War. That was back in 2021. Same exact game, cuter art, a little more vibrant, and it looks fun. I haven't tried that version, but it looks interesting to me. Air, Land, and Sea, my number 25. Chris, have you played this game? Never even heard of it. It's a, it's a clever little game. It plays about as long as a game of Star Realms. My favorite part is what Adam was talking about where you can concede. And I, if I remember right, I only played this a couple times and it's been a little while. But the, my favorite part was that when you concede in the round depends on how many points your opponent gets. So if you realize pretty early, I cannot win this combat, this war or this battle, I guess, then you concede early and they maybe get one point for it. But if you if you think you can hold out and you push a little bit later... They're going to get more points when you finally decide to concede. So, and then every once in a while, you know, your opponent thinks they've got it, but you're going to keep pushing and they're like, oh, I'm going to get a lot of points this round. And then you can pull out that big trick right at the end and and pull it away from them. This was a fun game. I'd, I'd go back to this. It was good. This is cool, Chris. I think you'd, I think you'd enjoy it. All right. Well, my number 25 is another rule breaker. It is Rap Gods, designed by Omari Akil and published by Colorway Game Labs. And the reason I call it a rule breaker is like Wingspan, it was one that 
I wasn't quite sure if it belonged on this list. And the reason for that is because I've only played it one time. We reviewed it on an episode last year, but that game has never left my mind. I have been craving an opportunity to play it again because I had so much fun playing it the first time. It ticked off so many of the boxes that I love about gaming. And one of them was a great theme. I mean, talk about another unique theme. You're a rap artist competing against other rap artists for the most street cred. And it was so much fun playing that. The art on the board is awesome. It looks so much like his 80s uh, street art. It was fun. It was colorful. It has such a great sense of humor. The cards, I think, almost every one made me laugh out loud when I read them. And I thought it was an absolute blast. It's one that I don't know how much staying power would have because I've only played it one time. So it's possible that after a few more plays, I wouldn't feel quite the same. But I really want to try. This is actually one that I want to get a copy of. Haven't gotten around to doing that yet, but I really do want to play this one again. And I enjoyed it so much the first time. It left such an impression on me that I felt like I needed to have it on this list. And it actually did drop in where it was at spot number 25 on my on my list. So when I compared this to other games I might be playing, this one came up over and over again. So Hopefully, I'll get a chance to get this one back on the table, or at least a virtual table, sometime in the not-too-distant future. This was another episode I went back and re-listened to recently. It reminded me how much fun we had playing this game, and I am dying to play this game again now. And I was just going to ask you, Chris, if you had picked up a copy yet, because you said on that episode that you were planning to, but I think it was out of print at the time. So I, I would love to play this again. It, it was super fun. It was surprisingly interesting Euro-style resource management mechanisms built around a fun, quick, card-driven game that had just a unique, you know, unique theme, unique art style. Really cool game. Rap Gods was great. What is a quest if the players ain't willing? What is a pence if you don't have a shilling? Rap Gods, what a fantastic game. I This was close to making my top 30. I love this game. Glad it's on your list, Chris. This is a great game. All right, cool. So my number 24 is a game that I bet did not make Adam's list. It's probably well outside the... 90 mark and that is outlive outlive is a uh, game that was published by le boy de Joux. the designer is gregory oliver this is one of those rare games that i used to own i gave away and i regret it i wish i still had this in my collection it, it's still every time i play it i have fun with it i think about it a lot uh, this is kind of a um they call it a worker displacement game so it's kind of a worker placement game but instead of just placing workers you're generally moving them around this rondelle type of map to pick up resources but there's a little bit of competition with other players the resources are scarce so if you're the first one to get there you might take some of the resources other people might not get them and these resources are super important this is a post-apocalyptic game and the whole idea is you're trying to keep your people alive you have some people you have an, a shelter you're trying to build up that shelter but you have to get enough food and water to keep your 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 survivors alive and if you can't feed them or give them enough water at the end of the round they're going to die and uh, so it's, it's very important to get the right resources. But aside from just keeping your people alive, you're trying to, you know, gain points like you would in a Euro style game. And the way you're going to get points is by repairing equipment that will also add you some kind of engine building. It'll make your actions better. You're going to build rooms in your shelter, which will allow you to collect more settlers there and uh, more survivors, as well as give you some extra engine building mechanisms. And there's this cool mechanism where every round, it's played over six rounds, but there's this event that's going to happen. And this event is a negative effect for everybody. 
But if you can spend the resources at the end of the round to solve this event, you remove it. You, you make it better for everybody, but there's some valuable victory points on those as well. So there's always some competition about trying to solve these events, which you're going to give up your, your resources, but you're going to get a nice group of points for it. This game is so much fun to me. It's so thematic. I just love Outlive. I have nightmares about this game, Tim, but I'd still go back to it. It made my list. Somehow it's at number 86. What a frustrating game, but pretty, I don't know. It's kind of fun to go and die all the time, I guess, for some people. I don't know. Somehow it's on the number 86. What's wrong with you, Adam? <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen anyone as happy playing a game as Adam playing Outlive after a weekend, a gaming weekend. I just remember... Him like, okay, I have to give up some resources. He just throws his resources across the board. <laughs> it takes a lot to rile Adam up. <laughs> I was such a grumple up playing this game. My brain was cooked. I was Everybody kept dying. It was so frustrating for me. I, I'm sure there's a way to succeed at this game. I just don't know what it is. But what you can succeed at is my number 24 game. This is a game that Tim doesn't like as much as I don't like Outlive. Soul, Last Days of a Star. Soul Train. <laughs> this game was super unique to me. I don't know any game quite like it. You got this mothership that's going around the outside of a board. From that mothership, you can release these little, I don't know, they're like little builder ships. Uh, they can go towards the core of this star through these little gates that you have to build. You get them in a certain pattern, in a certain shape. And you can build these other things. Maybe these other things give you more energy or maybe they give you more resources, whatever. And then you can use other people's stuff too. So there's this shared incentive in a common space, which is just cool to me. The first few times I played it, I was like, what's going on here? I don't even understand like how this works. What you're trying to do is build the most energy by the end of the game as you build buildings towards the center of the star they become more powerful you want to time it right sometimes you can use other people's buildings when they don't have enough energy to use their own buildings and then you can get you can steal the bonus away from them there's a lot going on here this game is so interesting it's so unique it's mostly positive there's very few negative effects for other players which i think is a neat aspect of the game it's only positive so if somebody uses your stuff you have a chance to get a positive bonus from that as well anyway a lot of great stuff going on here this is soul last days of a star this game is one that i have sold as well tim it's out of print right now it's going for a super high price allegedly coming back to kickstarter at some point haven't heard much news about it lately i would like to get this one back in my collection Soul, Last Days of a Star, that's my number 24. Game has a really cool production, and I can't even explain why I didn't like it. I think maybe it has to do with the idea that it's, you know, kind of makes you think it's going to be something where you can actually plan for, but then there's like this spatial situation that I can't, that I can't plan for, so it was super frustrating to me. I played it twice in one night, really didn't like either game of it. I don't know if I was just in a bad mood that night, so I'm not going to put the game down. I think it's got some really unique stuff going on. I don't really want to go back and play it again, but if I ever did, I wonder if I'd have a different feeling about it. But, you know, very, very unique in any case. All right. Well, my number 24 game is Viticulture Essential Edition, designed by Jamie Stegmeier and Alan Stone and published by Stonemeyer Games. This is such a lovely, elegant game. In this, you are attempting to be the most dominant and successful wine producer 
in your region of Italy, and you do this by building buildings on your on your uh, your vineyard, giving tours, getting money, filling orders, inviting visitors to your to your property, and scoring a whole lot of points with wine. It's one of these ones that has such an interesting theme. Again, not the traditional kinds of things you see in hobby board games, or at least back in the day. Uh, much more common now, but it's super enjoyable. The first time I played this game, it was so immediately uh, intuitive to me how to play it, which I thought was a great example of its elegance because I was able to sit down and get right into it, even though it has a relatively complex rule set. The art is beautiful. The production is nice. Although I will say that I had to buy the, the fancy coins for this one because otherwise you're going to get some cardboard coins, and that's never a good thing. But the only reason why this game is not higher on my list is that I think it gets a little bit samey after you've played it a bunch of times. This is one that I don't pull out once a week, but maybe I'll pull it out once every couple months, but I always want to go back to it, and I always have a great time when I do. Now, Tim, you had said that the Tuscany expansion was a must-have for you. I haven't played that yet, and maybe that would take care of some of those issues, the sameness issues. Maybe not, but it's probably something I don't invest in sometime soon. I, yeah, I think it did. I, I, I was going to ask you if you had picked it up yet. I think the Tuscany expansion is fantastic. It really opens up the choices and the decision space, adds some cool variability to the game. So I don't ever really want to play it without. I'm actually, I got invited by one of our listeners to play a version, uh, you know, an async game on Board Game Arena, and it doesn't have the Tuscany expansion. And it's still fun, but I definitely miss it. So I think you should try it with the Tuscany expansion. I was hoping when we went to PDXCon, I was thinking about bringing this with Tuscany to play with you guys. I didn't just because I couldn't fit enough games in my bag, but I think this would be a super fun four-player experience with us with Tuscany. So yeah, very cool game. All right, so getting down to number 23. I think you guys might be a little surprised by this one also. My number 23 is Anachrony published by Mind Clash Games, and the designer was David Turksey, Richard Amon, and Victor Peter are the designers for Anachrony. Uh, Anachrony is a very cool thematic worker placement game. Probably one of the most, one of the most interesting worker placement games you can pick up. Um, great choices, great tough choices. The reason why this is dropped for me is kind of what I was saying earlier, is that it's just over the point of being heavy, to where it's almost not fun. Like, I love playing this game, but it's it's just like, it's work, right? It's work to play it. And so I can't, I don't wanna play it too often. I love it when I do get to sit down and play it. I love it when I can play with somebody who already knows it. Adam and I sat down, played a two-player game of this recently, and it was awesome, because I didn't have to teach the game to anybody. We could just get in and start playing it, and that was very cool, it was a fun experience. Um, but it's not gonna happen, it's not gonna happen that often. Yeah, it's, a, it's an awesome game, and it's a game that I'm happy to play anytime, and it's going to stay in my collection. It's a game I'm going to be excited to pull out a couple times a year and dig into. The There's some really cool expansions for it, some cool modules. I've tried a couple of them now, but it's just too heavy for me to be want to be to, to be playing all the time. So this last year, this made my number one game of all time on our top 10 list, and uh, it fell quite a bit just because every time I've played it since then, it's still a fun experience, still an interesting experience, but it's... It's just a little bit heavier than I think I can get that much enjoyment out of. Tim, I can't argue with anything you're saying. I think it's probably great at, I don't know, two or three. I don't know. Four players wasn't too bad either. It got no. going pretty quick. What a cool game. But yeah, you're right. The rules can be heavy to pick up right away. But when we just dove right into it, that was fantastic. We were flying right through. 
I had such a great time playing this game. What a surprise that it's dropped that much for you. Yeah, and the thing is, like, when I say it's heavy, it's not even that it's heavy and that it's, like, we never have to go look up rules for the most part. I mean, it's pretty streamlined once you know the game. It's like, if I don't plan out everything right this round, I'm going to screw myself. And I screw myself constantly. And you don't want to do that, right? So I want to sit there and plan out everything. And it just gets to be like this mental exercise to try to put okay, I've got to make sure to place this worker here to get this resource because I can build this building, which will allow me to place this other worker. Oh, but wait, I forgot that I didn't leave somebody open to to bring my workers back uh, and, and give them water and wake them up. So now I've got to go use this negative action to wake them up. So I got to deal with that consequence later. And it's it's this just series of you know heavy consequences that you have to plan for and deal with. And it's cool. It's so cool because of all that. But it's also it's a brain burn and brain burns are just, they're falling down a little bit for me as far as games that I want to keep going back to. So it's a little lower on my list. It's still an awesome game. Definitely highly recommend you check it out if you want a heavy worker placement game. So I forgot to mention on my number 24 for soul designer is Ryan Spangler, Sean Spangler published by elephant laboratories. That's their own publishing company. So moving on my number 23 game is battle for Roku gone. Why is it my number 23? Well, I have such an urge to get this one (laughs) to the table more often or at all. (laughs) Before I get into that, designer Molly Glover, Tom Jolly, and publisher is Fantasy Flight Games. This game is beautiful. If you haven't seen a production, go look at it. It's set in this IP. I'm not too familiar with it. Legend of the Five Rings, Legend of the Tongue, Ten Rings, something like that. It's beautiful looking. What you're doing in this game, you have these little secret shields. You have all these chits. It's kind of like samurai a little bit, but way better than samurai in my opinion. You're drawn from these chits. You have uh, five chits per round. One of those is a bluff. You're putting these all over the map one at a time. And they can be either kind of attack oriented or defense oriented or surprise attack oriented. Or it can be a bluff. Then you also have a few cards in your hand that you can be they can be used to like expose somebody's shit that they put out there. So you can reveal it to yourself, to everybody. You can make them put it back in their hand. Some of them let you just discard it. So all these different powers you get for controlling these different areas. You do that over the course of five rounds, trying to get these points. It's an area control game. We haven't tried it yet. I would love to play this one of you guys. I think it's pretty neat. It's got some stuff we haven't tried yet. That's battle for Rokugan, my number 23 game. Adam, I'm glad to see that the game you haven't played yet didn't at least make your top 10. We'll see if any more come up here, but <laughs> we do have to get this played. I have played against myself okay. forehanded. So. Fair enough, fair enough. Does that count? Mm. I, I haven't played this one either, but I do have a Roku. <laughs> I used to. Mine's gone. You got Rokugan. You guys didn't didn't even stop there. Oh, there, there. <laughs> nice. That's great. My number 23 game is Tainted Grail, The Fall of Avalon, designed by Christoph Piskorski and Marcin Svirkat, and published by Awaken Realms Games. Thank you, Adam, so much for selling me. I am so happy to have this game. It fits all the things that I love about a big, epic, huge figures board game. It's also one like some of the others that we played that can be played either cooperatively or it can be played as a solo game. This is one that I would only want to play solo. That's why I bought it. That's how I want to play it. And the storyline of this thing is this is in the latter days of Avalon when this evil force called the Weirdness has corrupted the countryside and all the the great knights of the day are dead. And now they're calling on you and your buddies 
the sad little leftovers to go out there and search the land, trying to find some way to restore peace and safety to Avalon. And you do this by moving around this area, exploring an area made up of cards. Every time you move into a new spot, you put a new card out with a new location on it. Sometimes you have to refer back to a little storybook that tells you a little bit of a, a vignette about what's happening on that space. And it's got this super interesting, a little bit fussy and complicated, but you're playing solo, so take your time, combat system where you throw down card after card after card with little connectors that tell you if you play this card after this card, if these two things connect, then this thing happens. It's, it's really kind of interesting, hard to explain, but a lot of fun. The atmospherics of this game are incredible. The art is dark, 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 uh, which I say this uh, for the benefit of one of our listeners, Seth Gonzalez, who is probably as big a fan of darkness as I am in games and in art. So Seth, this one's for you. Lots of fun. And I, I'm looking forward, actually, I've got a little bit of time to myself here coming up when my wife and son are going away on a vacation. And I'm going to be at home and I'm going to spend a lot of the time playing Tainted Grail, The Fall of Avalon. I'm glad to see my superfluous Kickstarter purchases are hitting your number 23 <laughs> spots on your list. That's fantastic. Chris, you got to let me know, I, how is this game to set it up, to get it going, to look through this books and this book and this book? You mentioned it's a little fiddly and fussy but it's also you're doing it solo so does that bother you is it an issue it doesn't bother me if i was sitting around a table with you guys playing it i don't think i'd like it that much but if i'm sitting there by myself taking my time i don't mind that kind of complexity because i'm doing it on my own time and the complexity i think in a lot of ways enhance the overall experience because it allows you to get into these little nuances of the story and the experience that make it richer, I think. But again, I think great as a solo experience. Not sure I'd want to do this as a, as a co-op game. All right. Well, my number 22 is a two-player re-implementation of the Antoine Bowser classic Seven Wonders. And this is Seven Wonders Duel. And uh, one of the things I think that really makes this game special is probably that you've got a great designer in Antoine Bowser. And then you've got another great designer that co-designed this with him, and that was Bruno Catala. They took the classic big group drafting game, Seven Wonders, and turned it into a two-player only game. And the way they do this is by setting up the drafting mechanism in a way where, you know, the cards are kind of set up in a pyramid where you've got one row that's face up that you can choose from, and then the next row is face down. And when you take a card, if, if another card is revealed from the row above it, it gets flipped over and it's available for the next person to draft and etc. So you've always got a tough choice of like, this looks like the best card for me, but what am I going to re reveal for my opponent? I don't know yet. A lot of tough choices plays very quick. If I'm going to sit down for 30 minutes with one other player, this is my game of choice every time. Now I will say, and this is not the first time it's going to, or this is not the last time you're going to hear this on my list, but this game got significantly better with an expansion and that is the Pantheon expansion. So I liked Seven Wonders Dual Base. It was great, but it did start to feel a little repetitive, a little bit of a push and pull. There's two ways in this game that you can outright win it instead of waiting to get to the end and see who has the most points. 
One is with the military track. There's this track where if you can get enough military points, you can push this marker all the way to the other opponent's end and just win the game immediately. And the other is by collecting six different science symbols, which are these green cards you can get in the game. But neither of those conditions rarely happen when you're playing in just the base game because it's pretty clear to see when somebody's pushing you too far or pushing towards them and you can pretty much stop them. So it was rare that those really came into play. They kind of were there to more force you to take cards that you didn't want. And that wasn't super fun. And it started to just get a little redundant. Once you add in the Pantheon expansion, it adds a whole new level of random cards that may be available to purchase for the game. I'm not going to get too far into how the mechanisms work here, but they give some nice surprises. It makes every game feel a little bit different. And there's a couple of cool opportunities that really expand on those two, the, those two uh, paths to victory, the, the science path and the military path, where you really have to watch your opponent if they're starting to head in those directions, because they might be able to throw out some pri- surprises to you later in the game. Adds a fun new decision space, gives you an opportunity to do some actions in the second and third round that don't require you to take a card and reveal one for your opponent. So sometimes it, it feels much better and just adds more variety to the game. So Seven Wonders Duel with the Pantheon expansion, my favorite two-player, less-than-an-hour gameplay experience. My number 22 game is Through the Ages, A New Story of Civilization. And this one has been bumped up for me only because of the app and Chris, your interest in playing this one with me. I've had such a blast. We've been playing this one for the past, I don't know, three, four months, basically on a loop. We'll try it and we'll go either head to head or with a computer bot in there or some random person from the internet or a couple of computer bots in there like we have going right now. And the app is just tremendous. People are going to say, well, this doesn't even count. You're just playing it on the app. But well, for me, it counts. This game's rad. The app does all the bookkeeping for you. Um, it handles all these little blue cubes. I'm not even sure what these blue cubes do. They do something. I'm just kidding. They keep track of your resources and how much you can use and when it's going to be deleterious to you if you don't use them all. Anyway, this game's designed by Vladik Vadal and Czech Games Edition. We've been playing this one tons, Chris. There's an expansion for it. It adds all these historical characters. You're moving through from like the, I don't know, the Stone Age, way back in time, moving up through current times. I think This game is one of the reasons why Tapestry doesn't quite do it for me because I'd just rather be playing this game all the time. Interested to hear your thoughts, Chris. That's my number 22, Through the Ages, A New Story of Civilization. I think it's a great game, and I'm with you. Playing this game on the app is a great experience. This is one I think may actually be better on the app because there is so much bookkeeping to do. It strikes me as a game that if you had to do all the the refreshing the cards constantly and handing them those little blue cubes and how many actions you have, and it would get a little bit overwhelming. But you streamline all of that and put it in with a nice graphic interface. And amazingly, one of the uh, actually a funny tutorial in the game. And it's an absolute blast. I think I would like to try this one in real life. But honestly, I think I like the app better. This is one game that made me like Tapestry more, but um, <laughs> I'm not. I'm actually maybe not kidding about that. I think it's a little bit convoluted, but I think part of the problem for me is that playing on the app, it's not a great way for me to learn a game. I think I would probably enjoy this more in person where I could kind of ask questions and understand 
how the resource management works. I've tried it several times. I still don't fully get what I'm doing with all these cubes moving around and when I lose resources and when I lose happiness. And so I think I just need a, an actual learn of this game in a physical production. And I might actually dig it. I like the idea of the advancing card row and the, you know, it, it's, it's, it's got some cool stuff going on for sure, but I don't need to play it. So we're going to see our first overlap at number 22 with Cthulhu Death May Die by Eric Lang and Rob Davio, published by Simon Games. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on this one. Tim already talked about it. The one thing I did want to add is one of the things that really knocks me out about this game. It's so fun that each of the individual characters, as Tim mentioned before, has powers. And each person has one specific power that only they have, so it makes them a little bit unique. There's also an insanity track. And this is so thematic because if there's one thing that's like a running theme of every story with Cthulhu in it, it's about insanity. And in this game, as you move up the insanity track, your powers, especially your individual power, get more powerful. There is a benefit to going insane. The more insane you get, the more likely you are to be able to get done what you got to get done. So for example, you may be a good fighter, but when you get to a certain level of insanity, you may become a berserker and just do hits all over the place and be able to take out a great old one with no problem. But you push it too far and then you die. I love that. I think it's so fun. I think it's so thematic. It really just gives the character some personality and it adds to the story of this game. And I just think that is amazing. I love that. And I love this game overall. So Yeah, I was just going to add on one thing I didn't mention. And, and since you were talking about the insanity track, each character starts with, I guess we'll call it a mental illness. And and I know, you know, it's it's not good to kind of use that as a as a mechanism here. But the way it plays out is that as you're going up this insanity track, there's certain levels at the track which is when you get to a certain level, that's when you're going to get a benefit power. But the other thing that's going to happen is that your mental illness is going to trigger. And so you might be something like, what are some of the ones you've got there? You've got like multiple personalities or you've got... Post-traumatic stress disorder for yeah. the soldier character. So, so there's all kinds of different... And everyone starts with a random card that's dealt to you at the beginning of the game. And those things can do really negative things, but sometimes they do negative things to everything that's in the room with you. So if you can set yourself up to be in the right position you can potentially hurt the bad guys when that triggers and not hurt your your you know your co-players or whatever you know, the people that your teammates and so that's a fun part of the puzzle here too it's very simple but it's always a different little puzzle you have to work around and plan and set yourself up and of course you don't know when you're going to hit that point on the insanity track cuz it's based on dice rolls so you could go in there and, and push your luck and say yeah i've got three other teammates in the room with me and if i happen to hit this level on my insanity track, I'm going to do two damage to everybody in the room. But I roll and I manage to not manage to get any tentacles and raise that track. And that's a big moment. Or you can have that same exact power and be in a room with like eight enemies, uh, cultists and, and monsters and do that two damage to everyone in the room. And that's also a big moment. So it's one more thing that's kind of a fun little piece of this puzzle in this game. Very cool game. Glad to see it's uh, still hidden for you as well, Chris. All right. So we're down to our last pick on this week's list. This is our number 21. Now, 21 for me was interesting because I mentioned that I specifically didn't include games that I'd only played once on my list. And partially because some of these are games that I'd only played pre-final production copies. Well, this is a game I've played twice, but it was not the final production. In fact, this game is still on Kickstarter today. It'll probably be over by the time this episode is released. But this is ARCs, designed by Cole Worley. I can't explain 
why this game hit so much for me while Root was such a massive fail for me, but I think I can. I think the reason is that, and probably what a lot of people like about Root, is this multiple levels of complexity. You have to figure out what everybody's doing. Everyone's got their own thing going on. Personally, I just don't enjoy that level of asymmetry. I think it's just too much from a teaching and learning perspective to, to for me to actually get the fun out of the game. And so ARCs is a much more streamlined experience. Now, I haven't played the campaign mode of this game, but I'm very glad that the base version of it exists where you can just play the single game scenarios because I think it's such a fun way to get introduced to the mechanisms. I think it's a fun game that even if they didn't have a campaign mode, I think I'm going to continue to enjoy this for a long time. It was streamlined. I like the little objective scoring bonuses in this game. It's not all focused on just combat, just territory control. It's a nice mix. And and what you're going to be driven towards every game is going to change. What technology is going to be available every game is going to change. This game is just really fun for me in a lot of ways. The one game that I was thinking of after our last play of it was The Expanse. And I remember being surprisingly I surprisingly enjoyed The Expanse a lot more than I thought I would because I haven't traditionally been a big fan of like 4X games or area control games. But I think The Expanse did it in such a streamlined, quick game that it was just simple to its core, really simple mechanisms. And I think ARCs gave me that same feeling. It was just simple mechanisms, fairly quick playing, fairly quick to get into, fun decisions, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm surprised I liked Arc, I, I like ARCs as much as I did. I can only expect that the production and the gameplay is going to just evolve a little bit more by the time they finally ship it. I'm really excited for this game. I'm excited to play it more, and I'm excited to delve into those campaign modes when the situation's right, and I've got a group that wants to play through a few scenarios. So ARCs is my number 21 game of all time. Tim, I couldn't agree with you more about ARCs. Well, I guess I could agree with you more about ARCs because that'll be coming up in a future episode. I'll be talking about ARCs. I absolutely enjoyed this game. It's by no means finalized, but I had such a good time playing the single session game. I'm going to talk about it more upcoming. Uh, what a great pick, ARCs. My number 21 game is Shards of Infinity. This is a game designed by Gary Arant and Justin Gary and published by Stone. Blade Entertainment and Ultra Pro, I think, gets the credit here in the United States. This is a pure deck builder, much like Star Realms. No slight to Star Realms. Chris, I absolutely enjoy this game, but this game has a lot of things, a couple different things going on for it. One of those things is that doesn't have the make you discard all five of your cards <laughs> strategy, which is absolutely frustrating to me. And I, uh, lots of times, Sarah and I will be playing. Uh, Star Realms and we'll have a gentleman's gentlewoman's agreement that we won't really go after those yellow cards and Chris shaking his head at me because he likes to be savage and absolutely crush me with that discard strategy it's something you can account for in Star Realms yes you can buy those cards to make sure your opponent doesn't get them all and just hose you the entire game but shards here has a couple of things I like that you can buy these infinity shards and once you get a certain threshold and you play that Infinity Shard, you just wipe out your opponent, no matter what they have going on for them. There's this whole dig around in your discard deck and count the number of these kind of cards, and boom, that adds to your kind of strike power. That was pretty neat. We played this at three. I thought that was cool doing that. You get to choose where you delegate damage. That was cool. Once you guys left, Steve and I played this a few more rounds and tried to do different things with it. And there's a little, just just a, that slight edge, a little bit more going on. And I, I think... I enjoy this one a little bit more than Star Realms. Now, the 
accessibility. So Stardoms has that great app that you can just play anytime. I can just punch you guys in there and get a game going. I think I just dialed up Tim out of the blue after like six months of silence. And then I played him once and I beat him and I'm never going <laughs> to call him back again. So I can have the last victory against Tim. <laughs> The theme here is cool. It's these, I don't know, it's like these future guys in a fantasy world, but a little bit of cyberpunk stuff going on. I don't know. The artwork's fantastic. The little different clans, the different factions are pretty neat. I have a great time. I love these pure deck builders, which you introduced to me, you guys introduced to me, and I think Shards of Infinity might take it to the next level. That's why it's at my number 21 of all time ever, definitively. I really want to try this game. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Star Realms and I'm loyal to it, but this game really sounds like a blast. Adam, there is actually an app for this. I don't know if you can play against other people online. I suspect you can, so you guys might want to try it sometime. I do actually already have it installed on my phone. Yeah, let's try it. I've heard that they haven't updated it in a while and that they don't have the expansions on there. So it gets a few complaints. I've looked into it. Yeah, I I think after a couple plays, I think Star Realms is still my preferred game. But this is a fun little deck builder and it does do a lot of the same things with a couple evolutions. I think that I I really like that shard mechanism where you could kind of level up your cards based on how much you got shards, I think it was. But it did feel a little more wordy. I, I, I like the simplicity of Star Realms a little bit more. But yeah, cool game and very, very similar. All right, well, rounding out my list for tonight, at number 21, we have Scythe, designed by Jamie Stegmeier and published by Stonemeyer Games. And in case you can't tell from my list so far, I'm a huge Stonemeyer Games fan. I, I cannot lie. But Scythe is a thematic area control game that includes some aspects of resource management and various other things. There's a whole lot of stuff going on in this game where five factions are trying to take over various areas of war-torn 1920s Europe in this alternate reality, which steampunk and it has mechs designed by Nikola Tesla. It's a very cool world to be exploring in. This is, for anybody who has listened to the show before, has probably heard me talk about this game. It's one of the first that got me excited about hobby board gaming back, Tim, when you first introduced me to it. And I never stopped liking this game. It's one that I hadn't bought a copy of because we'd always played on your copy. And then after everybody kind of split off to the four winds, uh, we played it online. But it's one that I always look at as I probably need to get my copy so that I have one here to play if I ever you know, get a chance to play with somebody in real life. But always loved it. Has a lot of great memories. And I've also enjoyed, this is not the same game, but uh, related My Little Scythe, which is the kids version of Scythe, as strange as that may sound, which is also a whole lot of fun. This game is definitely a great one to cap off the night at my 21 spot or number one for this evening. Yeah, Scythe has one of the coolest productions, my favorite artwork still in board games. And it's a very interesting and unique game. So yeah, definitely a very cool choice there, Chris. All right. So that is the end of our 21 through 30 best games of all time follow along subscribe and listen to us next week and we'll cover our number 11 through 20 and then the week after that number one through 10 so lots of fun games to talk about and discuss otherwise i think that'll wrap up this episode and uh, once we finish that whole list out we may have a little bit of uh, final thoughts about making these lists and about some of the games we played on the final episode there i did want to mention that if you enjoyed the show please subscribe and if you liked it enough to give us a rating, we would appreciate that. 
We did get a really nice rating from another listener this week. Uh, the listeners Enduku, and they said the title was Thoughtful Reviews. They said, great podcast about board games. I really enjoy how these guys explain the game and then discuss what they liked and disliked in a thoughtful manner. And they don't always agree, so you get different views. Thanks for helping me decide on many games. You're welcome, Enduko. You're right, we don't agree on many games, but that's part of what makes it fun to hang out with Chris and Adam and, and talk about these things. So thanks for that nice review. If any of you are enjoying the show, again, please you know leave us a review to appreciate it. And also tell friends about it and talk about us online to people in the board game community. That's a great way to spread the word a little bit. Uh, and if you don't follow us on Twitter, as I mentioned at the top of the show, BG underscore hot takes, that's where we spend the most of our social media time. We interact with every comment that you leave. So would love for you to join us there and hang out and chat with us and discuss our polls until next week. Take care, everybody. Good night, all. Bye bye.